0: Thank you, Tyler. Well, good morning, uh, Fellowship family and anyone else who may be tuning in. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the Director of Youth Ministry here at Fellowship Bible Church, and I also oversee our Adult Connect and Grow Ministries. As you can see, it is, it is I who's here, not Todd Malone, this morning. Uh, Todd, at the, uh, near the end of last week, came down... With some sickness, and so he asked me to fill in for him this week. Because of that, uh, he is feeling better. By the way, uh, because of that, we will not be continuing our Roman series this Sunday. We're taking another detour this week, so this will be uh, another standalone sermon. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter seventeen, verse twenty-four. And while you're turning there. I have a story I want to share with you. In October 1966, a large missions organization was holding its annual conference in London, and a young man who worked for the organization named Doug was assigned to do uh, menial tasks like sweeping the steps of the conference center where they were holding the meetings and where everyone would be staying. Well, a little after midnight one night, uh, while he was sweeping up, an older man approached him and asked if that's where the conference was being held, and he confirmed that it was. And the man told him that he was attending the conference and was staying at the conference center. So Doug uh, told him, well, there weren't any rooms with beds available, but uh, he would try to find a place for him to sleep. So he led the man into the conference center, into a room with about 50 people who were all sleeping on the floor. The older man hadn't brought anything to sleep on. So Doug found some padding and a light blanket to lay down and uh, found him a towel to use for a pillow. The older man said that that would be fine and said that he really appreciated what Doug had provided for him. Well, the next morning when Doug woke up, he discovered that he was in big trouble because the leaders of the conference shared with him that this older man that he had put on the floor and given a towel for a pillow, <coughs> pardon me, this older man was none other than Francis Schaefer, who was the featured speaker at this conference, and they had a room reserved for him, of course, well, I think it's uh, very interesting that that little story speaks volumes about the character of Francis Schaeffer. It tells, illustrates his humility and his graciousness that even though he could have insisted that they find a bed for him, he was very thankful and gracious for what had been provided. The story that we're going to be looking at today is also a short story, and it speaks volumes about who Jesus is. It illustrates his identity and tells us a little bit more about what he's about. So uh, go ahead and read along with me In Matthew chapter 17. we're going to be reading verses 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, "Does your teacher not pay the tax?" He said, "Yes." And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, "What do you think, Simon?" <clears throat> from whom do the kings of the earth collect tolls and taxes? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open the mouth, of, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself." Now, before I expound on this passage, let's get oriented to its context. This story takes place late <clears throat> excuse me late in Jesus' ministry. It's after Peter's confession at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus had asked, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter had said, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And Jesus responded, "Blessed are you, Simon Barjona." For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And it's also after the transfiguration, when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up onto a mountain and then revealed a small measure of his divine glory to them. And I say small measure because, of course, if he had revealed his full measure, it would have obliterated them. And immediately before this passage, immediately before this story with the tax collectors... Jesus told his disciples that he was about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they would kill him, and then he would rise on the third day. So that's the emotional state that the the apostles are experiencing right before this happens. So now let's get into the story itself. First of all, Peter encounters the tax collectors. Look again at verses 24 and 25. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. The story begins with a tax issue. In fact, this tax issue is the common thread through the whole story. The tax collectors asked Peter whether Jesus pays the two drachma tax. What is the two drachma tax? In some versions it says tribute, in some versions it says temple tax. And that gives us a clue right there. This was not a civil tax. It wasn't like our sales tax or income tax. It was actually a religious tax that was used to fund the operation of the temple in Jerusalem. And this tax actually originated back in the days when Moses was leading the children of Israel after they had been delivered from Egypt. <clears throat> in Exodus chapter 30... God instructed Moses to take a census of the whole nation, and then he said that he was to collect a half shekel from every person in the nation who was 20 years old or older, and then that money was to be used for the upkeep and operation of the tabernacle. Fast forward to Jesus' day, and that was still going on. It was an annual tax now, and annually they would collect this money from everybody 20 and up, and then use that for the upkeep and operation of the temple. Now, one shekel was equal to about four drachmas, and that's why a half shekel became the two drachma tax. They were now using uh, the Roman money instead of uh, their own shekels, but it was still referred to as a shekel because they were in Israel. Now, apparently, this temple tax was not mandatory because these guys went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Instead of just demanding it outright, they asked if he paid it. Now, Peter immediately answered yes because... He figured, well, Jesus, above anybody, is a man who loves the Lord, who cares about the worship and honor of God. And so, of course, he would pay this tax to make sure that the temple is kept up. He assumed that Jesus, like any other God-loving Jew, would pay the tax because of his interest in worship. More than any man Peter had ever known, Jesus was a sincere and consistent worshiper of God. So let's agree that Peter's initial response was correct. He's thinking, I'm sure Jesus would want to pay this tax because he cares about God, he cares about God being worshipped, and that's what this tax is about. So that takes us to the second part of the story, where Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Look at verses 25 and 26 again. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? from their sons or from others. And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now as soon as Peter comes into the house, Jesus approaches him and asks him some questions to teach him something. And I don't think that Jesus was rebuking Peter. I don't think that he intended Peter to say something other than what he said to the tax collectors. I think he was just using this tax collection incident as an opportunity to expand Peter's understanding and teach him something. So he asks Peter a real straightforward question. You know that what, how kings operate. They take taxes on their people, but do they take taxes from their own children or do they take them from people outside their family? And Peter answers the obvious answer. Well, of course, they take it from others. They don't take it from their own sons. So then Jesus draws a conclusion from that that the sons are free. The sons are free from tax. The kings of the earth do not tax their own sons. They collect taxes from their other subject. Now, Christ's question and his answer are an implicit claim to be the Son of God. Because remember the context here. We're talking about collecting the temple tax. So the analogy is between the kings of the earth and God himself. Earthly kings do not collect taxes from their own sons, So God does not collect tax from his own son. Since Jesus is the son of God, he doesn't have to pay the temple tax because the temple is owned by his father. Now, I don't think Peter would have necessarily felt embarrassed by this line of questioning and this interchange. He was probably filled with wonder as he was reminded once again of who Jesus is, that this man standing in front of him, this man with whom he ate, this man with whom he talked, this man he could reach out and touch, was none other than the literal Son of the living God of the universe. Now it's true that that truth had come out of Peter's own mouth just a few days before at Caesarea Philippi when he said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But I suspect that having being reminded unexpectedly of that truth must have sparked renewed admiration for the Lord in his heart. Jesus is the Son of the living God. And that's why, of course, he would be exempt from this temple tax, Now, one truth you and I know that Peter did not, because it hadn't been revealed yet, is the truth of union with Christ. When you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, you are united to Christ spiritually. And you're adopted into God's family. You become a child of God. And the benefits of being a son of God are now extended to you. John 1.12 says that when uh, to all who received Jesus, who all believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And Galatians 3:26 says, "For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith." That means that the privilege of being a son of the king of the universe is extended to everyone who trusts in Christ, who trusts in Christ. Jesus shares His sonship with us. How magnificent a truth is it that Jesus is the Son of God and how generous of Him to share that Sonship with us. That means that if you're in trouble, you have the same access to God the Father that Jesus has. That means that the Father is just as intimately involved in your life as He was in the life of Jesus. Don't just rush by these verses that are a reminder that Jesus is the Son of God. Think on what an exalted truth it is. Think on the exalted nature of Jesus. He is the Son of God, unique among all men who have ever been or ever will be born. And think on the unbounded mercy He showed us in giving us the right to share that sonship. Jesus implicitly claimed to be the Son of God by this line of questioning, and that brings us to the conclusion of the story. Jesus demonstrates that He's the Son of God. In 1857, Arnold Potter, a Mormon missionary, claimed that he had an experience where his mortal body was transformed into an immortal body. And he declared himself Potter Christ, the Son of the Living God. Potter gathered a small devoted band around himself and started his own church. And then in 1872, he announced to his church that the time had come for him to ascend to heaven. He rode a donkey up to the edge of a cliff, stepped off the donkey, and leaped off the cliff to ascend to heaven. Well, we can all guess what happened. He fell to his death because Arnold, even though he claimed to be the Son of God, was not. He was just a mortal man. And the point is that anybody can claim to be the Son of God. But proving it, that's another matter. Any Jew in Israel could have told these tax collectors, I'm exempt because I'm the Son of God. I can claim to be the Son of God, you can claim to be the Son of God, but what's behind that? Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Jesus is about to demonstrate conclusively that he is the Son of God. He's going to show it. Right before he does that, however, he says something interesting and a bit surprising. He had just shown Peter, by this reasoning related to the kings of the earth, that he's exempt from paying the temple tax. But he's going to pay it anyway. And why? Look at the reason he gives. It's the beginning of verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, and just pause right there. He was going to pay the tax to avoid offending the tax collectors. Does that strike you as a little bit odd? Was Jesus ever reticent or hesitant or fearful of offending anybody in his life? In Matthew chapter 15, the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, the things you said offended the Pharisees. When he heard that, he didn't apologize. He didn't say, oh, let me go talk to him and try to smooth this over. He just went right ahead. In fact, he said the Pharisees are blind guides. So why is he suddenly worried about offending people? Well, the reason is that Jesus didn't offend people just for the sake of offense. Basically, Jesus was not a jerk. He offended people when it was righteous and good and necessary to do so. And in this case... He did not want to offend these tax collectors by implying that he didn't care about the worship of God. Because if he refused to pay this tax, they would assume that that meant he was apathetic about the temple and therefore apathetic about the worship of God. And that is not the kind of misunderstanding that Jesus wanted. He didn't want to offend the conscience of these men who probably did care about the worship of God since they were willing to collect taxes for it. And he also didn't want to hinder his ministry to the people by having this misunderstanding spread about him. In fact, it's another display of his humility that he was willing to put aside yet another right or privilege in order to more effectively, be, in order to more effectively minister to the people around him. So that's the offense he wanted to avoid. Now let's look at how he displayed his defined sonship. Look at verse 27 again. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open the mouth, when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So he tells Peter, to go down to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and throw a book, excuse me, <laughs> throw a hook in the water. And then he was to take the first fish that comes up and open its mouth. And inside the mouth, he would find a shekel. Now remember that i had said a shekel is worth four drachmas, and that's why one shekel would cover the tax for both Peter and himself. Now how did this demonstrate that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, think about the sequence of events that Jesus had to have control over for this to happen. First, someone had to drop a shekel coin into the Sea of Galilee. Then instead of that coin going all the way to the floor of the Sea of Galilee, it had to be caught by a fish. And swallowed but not swallowed completely just caught in its mouth and that fish had to be big enough that it could hold the coin in its mouth without being killed but it had to be small enough that it could be caught by a person using a hook instead of a net then that fish had to avoid being caught until Peter put his fish hook in the water and then it had to be the very first fish that latched onto Peter's hook and finally it had to latch onto Peter's hook without dropping the coin out of its mouth. Now I think we'll all agree that is absolutely, undeniably impossible. humanly impossible, there is no way that this could happen. There is no way this sequence of events could follow as Jesus was saying, unless he is the sovereign God who is in control of the world. Jesus demonstrated that he is the Lord of nature. He's in control of nature, in control of humanity. He showed that his knowledge is unbounded, and he showed that he is indeed the unique and divine Son of God. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and then he showed that he's the Son of God. Now, we might expect that Matthew would end this brief story by saying, then Peter did as Jesus commanded him and found it to be as he said and paid the temple tax. But Matthew doesn't do that. He ends with the instructions that Jesus gave Peter, implying that everything did follow just as Jesus had predicted it would. Now, the thrust of this story is that Jesus is the Son of God, sovereign over the world. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you can rest in the knowledge that your Savior is in control. That means you can rest when you think about your future. The Lord doesn't promise to keep us from suffering. In fact, he promises that we will experience suffering. In this world, you will have trials and tribulations. But he promises that no one can take us out of his hand. In John 10, 27 and 28, he said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You will suffer in this life. And eventually, unless the Lord returns first, you will die. But in suffering and in death, you are safe in the hand of Christ. And I realize that sounds contradictory. How can you tell someone that's suffering or even dying that they're safe? And the reason is because, as the old song puts it, it is well with their soul. You're standing with God your eternal inheritance, your place in God's family, your ultimate destiny, all of these things are unchanged by your circumstances, by your suffering, or even by your death. And as a matter of fact, it is in the middle of trials and tribulation when these great doctrinal truths about God really bear us up. Truths such as Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is sovereign over the world. They're intended to ground our relationship with Him. They're intended to motivate our worship of Him but they also serve as comfort, as medicine for our troubled souls. COVID-19 has disrupted the entire planet. And if you're in the high-risk group, you may feel worried that you'll catch it. Or you, I'm sure you have a friend or a loved one who's in the high-risk group, and maybe you're worried that they'll catch it. You can take your worries to the Lord of nature, the Lord of the coronavirus. Just as he governed the movements of those fish in the Sea of Galilee, he is governing the spread of this disease. It is righteous to take wise precautions and do what it is in our control to do to prevent the spread of this sickness by limiting your gatherings, by washing your hands. But our hope and our trust and our rest is in Christ. Whatever comes your way, you can stand on this truth. Jesus is the Son of God, sovereign over the world. Christ is able to protect you from getting this sickness. If you get this sickness, Christ is able to carry you through. And if this sickness were to take you from this life, Christ is able to safely carry you into his arms for eternity. This story about getting money from a fish's mouth is not a promise that the Lord will always miraculously supply our needs. Usually he works through natural means. But it is an example of the Lord's unlimited ability to supply our needs. There doesn't have to be a clear, tangible solution to your problem to be able to rest in the knowledge of his sovereignty. Your situation may be humanly impossible, and you can still trust that Jesus is able, far more than able, to meet your need. You can rest in the knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, sovereign over the world. And if you don't know what I mean by rest, think about this. Maybe you're worried about losing your job during this coronavirus crisis. How will you pay your rent? How will you buy food? How will you provide for your family? Tell the Lord about your worry. Tell him you're scared. Tell him you're confused. Tell him you're frustrated and angry. Tell the Lord what you're experiencing and ask for his help. Ask for his provision, his strength and his peace. Then praise him that he hears you. Praise him that he loves you. Praise him that he is still in control, that he is still sitting on the throne of the universe. Confess truth about your God. And whenever worry or fear or anger or impatience start rising up in your spirit, take it to the Lord. Set your heart on the truth of who He is. Ask Him again and again for strength, for peace, for provision. This is what it means to rest in His sovereign care. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Make your requests known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. When God tells us not to be anxious, He is not reprimanding us for feeling anxiety or worry or stress. He's comforting us. This is your Heavenly Father saying, My child, don't worry. I am in control. I love you. Tell me what's troubling you. Tell me what you're going through. I will guard you with my peace. Resting in the sovereign hand of Jesus means letting your requests be made known to Him so you can lay their weight on His shoulders. It, mean, it means reminding yourself of who He is so you can entrust your problems to Him. Jesus is the Son of God. He is sovereign over the world. If you're a high school senior like my son and you're feeling frustration and sadness over your senior year in high school being disrupted and all the experiences looking that you were looking forward to being changed or some even being canceled. Don't push those emotions down. Take them to the Lord in prayer. Tell Him what you're experiencing. Ask for His peace and His strength. If you're the mother of a newborn child and you're worried about the health of your baby, don't push those emotions down. Take them to the Lord. Tell Him about your fear. Tell Him about your insecurities. Ask Him for strength and protection. Praise Him that He is there for you. You may have to go to Him a hundred times a day to battle fear and worry and stress, <clears throat> but He never gets tired of it. Make every effort to rest in His peace. Jesus is the Son of God. He is sovereign over the world. I'll end with a blessing from the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace, At all times, in every way, the Lord be with you all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the name of your son Jesus, the one and only son of God, who is sovereign over all, we come to you today and we praise you for this reminder of your sovereign strength. We praise you for this reminder of who Jesus is. Lord, I ask that you would Give a special measure of grace to all of our church family today. I pray, God, that you would comfort them with your strength. I pray that you would provide for those who are suffering. Lord, I pray that you would help our church family to come together to support those who need you. I pray, oh God, that you would carry us through this trial. Help us to exercise wisdom and common sense. And Lord, help us to be able to rest In the midst of this chaos, may we not live in fear, Lord God, but may we live in the comfort of your loving hands. In your holy name I pray, commending your people into your hands. Amen. May God bless you all.